Soul Surmise with Steve Stockman, looking at issues of faith and culture. Let's take you South Carolina home. And growing up, you've shared some of that already, um, racism, etc. When did you first realise that there was issues because of the colour of your skin? I don't know. I think for me, it had less to do with the direct someone having an issue with the colour of my skin and more to do with our, I remember at a very young age feeling unpretty and that everything that made me me physically wasn't considered beautiful. So everything from the kinkiness of my hair to the wideness of my nose to the darkness of my skin to the flatness of my feet, <laughs> you know, everything. You know, I, I just remember feeling like I just knew at a very early age that I was not desirable. Not like in a, I was a child. I mean, culturally, that the culture didn't celebrate me. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I haven't come to it from that angle, and that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, did you share that with people at that stage, or was that something you had to grow with in adolescence and beyond? Or I don't remember articulating it at that stage. But I also remember, I I didn't think it was uh, unique to me. Um, You have to understand it's very complicated, it was very complicated and it can be. The the way we celebrate blackness in America today isn't the way it was celebrated when I was a child. When I was a child, I remember you were considered more desirable if you were lighter skinned. And, and there's a lot of cultures where that is, you know, the case. And that came from centuries of being told, basically, that blackness is bad and um, ugly and ignorant and all that stuff. So the lighter you were, the more accepted you were. The 
thinner, the longer your hair was or the less coarse your hair was, the more accepted you were. And oh my gosh, if you were light-skinned and had blue eyes, for goodness sake, you know, you were like God, you know. And, that, and that's coming from what, I mean, that's coming from a pop Hollywood culture of the blue-eyed blonde and... I don't even think it, I think it went even deeper than that. I mean, when my, my grandmother, the one who was a civil rights activist, my grandmother was uh, half black and half white. Her father was a white man from the community. My grandmother was very, very fair-skinned and had ginger hair. And uh, she was offered uh, the opportunity to go north and pass for white. So that was a thing that families would do because they would think you could have a better life. But in order to do that, you would have to cut your family off. It was done. You would never speak to them again. And my grandmother didn't want to do that. And she stayed and ended up becoming a civil rights activist. But so that, I don't think, was necessarily a pop culture thing in that way. I think that is literally the, the residue of slavery. Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, when you think about slavery in the United States, the thing that was, <laughs> it's going to be strange for me, the thing that was least damaging was the physical enslavement. It was the... The intentional mental dismantling of a people. Dehumanizing. It was absolutely that. To the point where we are now recovering from self-hatred, that thing where within the black community we would judge you for the color of your skin. That wasn't given to us. We didn't, you know, people aren't born hating their skin. That was taught to us. And so... I think that's where that, I think this culture reinforced it. It came from all different ways, but I, I do believe it probably ran deeper and further back than what I was just seeing on television. And when then did you, um, I, I, I love that name of your, uh, your granny, Johnny Ruth Jenkins. Johnny Ruth Jenkins. Johnny Ruth Jenkins. Yeah, it's a proper Southern name. It is. So mm -hmm. when did you become aware that in your family people were doing something about this racial thing? From the word go. Okay. Like, I don't remember not being aware of it. My, my mother was very um, strict. I wasn't allowed to listen to hip hop. I was not allowed to listen to hip hop. It was not okay, it was inappropriate. And, but at the same time, one of my earliest memories is walking around my house and passing the coffee table. And in the States, we have this, this, uh, uh, this magazine. It kind of looks like the Time magazines, but it was bigger and it was called Life. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Life magazine was massive. And this particular um, magazine had on the front of it a black and white photo of basically strange fruit. Black men hanging from trees, surrounded by members of the KKK, some of them unhooded, some of them still with their hoods on. And that was the front cover. And that, things like that were never hidden from me. So I couldn't listen to hip hop, but on the other side, I was never naive to the story. It was obviously intentional that I was supposed to know from a very early age that there was something to fight for. There was something, there was work to be done kind of thing. And was there something then for yourself to do in that at that age? Were you, was it that expected that you would become an advocate in some way? Would you have to? 
Absolutely. I mean, I remember um, Dr. King's birthday became a national holiday when I was a child, like as in you got out of school for it. And um, up until that point, I was always off school for his birthday, even though I got marked absent, because we were marching to the state capitol to demand that it would become a holiday. And then after it was a holiday and we all got off of work and school, I still had to get up out of bed and go listen. And honestly, we went to the state capitol and there were readings of his speeches all day long. And as a child, I was not impressed, okay? Not, I'm not gonna sit here and act like I was like, oh yes, for the people. I was so angry because I wanted to sleep in like everybody else. And we were always at marches. Uh, I say we, I'm an only child, but my mother and her sister are best friends and she has three daughters. And my aunt took up my, my grandmother's sort of mantle and she is the matriarch of the family. And she still, we joke with her, she's still doing the Freedom Fund. You know, she is still doing the work. And honestly, we were always somewhere, as children, we did not want to be to do the work. And as we got older, though, we started to appreciate it. Faith must have been a part of, in general, that whole ability to get through, well, we're still getting through it. As Paul has said tonight, we're, we're on this journey in America on racism and here and different things. Um, where did faith, I mean, you're saying you're being dehumanized. Did faith rehumanize you, or was that something that was difficult to do? Or? No, it's funny. Um, that's kind of a complicated question. I grew up that even though I knew that I was not considered beautiful or pretty or even as valuable on some level, the women who raised me, I, I did have a deep sense of value. I um, considered myself highly valuable. That was just, that was how we were treated within our family. That is how we were taught to carry ourselves. Um, we were taught to bow our heads for no one and, and to serve everyone. And so, in some ways, would I say it was faith? I think looking back on it, I think it was the women who raised me were living out a more authentic faith than many of the people who were going to church around me. And so maybe in that way, yes. But it was um, black women who believed in their own value who taught me how to stay humanized and to not dehumanize other people around me. I thought it was a useless dissertation until this week when I was re um, researching this. I, I did my master's dissertation on James Cone, a um, friend of Martin Luther King's. He has a book called The Spiritless, The Blues, where he goes into all these things that songs have that have political, spiritual, and social transformative power, really. And to quote a couple of the things... Um, uh, Bernice Johnson Reagan from Sweet Honey and the Rock she said how important were the musicians during the civil rights years they were crucial mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't call black people together in any committed way without a ritual that involved enormous amounts of singing mm -hmm. 
The singing was used to create the climate to get people ready to address the issues. The song leaders were absolutely essential. Mahalia Jackson gospel music had given the people courage and spirit when they were in danger. And Martin Luther King Jr. himself, an important part of the mass meetings was the freedom songs. In a sense, the freedom songs were the soul of the movement. Is that, was that your experience? It's, it's, it seems that the songs weren't only there to gather a crowd and warm them up, but it was part of the transformation. Is, is that yeah. accurate? I mean, when you look at the history of music within the black community, it, 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 you think of when black people were enslaved, message were, messages were passed through song, through old Negro spirituals. So singing wasn't just entertainment. What you were singing was life or death. It was instruction. It was a call. It was saying, it's safe, it's not safe. Come now, we're leaving this time. And that is, that is the history of the power of music, I think, within the black community. And growing up, we were absolutely raised in that tradition. You know, when we're, when we're marching to the state house, we're singing, we shall overcome. We, uh, black community singing together is something that we do in order to remind ourselves who we are, where we came from, and where we need to go. It's the way we pass on our story. It's the way we teach our children. Even now, I, I see myself with my kids being more concerned that I'm, what songs I'm teaching them, right, than other people that I know. But I think it comes from that thing of like, what you, it's funny, you can say I'm not a musician, but every single one of us has like a few songs in our heart that in times of deep trouble, they just sort of come out. Could be something your granny sang you or whatever. And for me, those songs were put into me by my family and my community. Yeah, I, I like to think that if Jesus is Lord of all, then he's Lord of my playlist. And, that it's, ah. and that's more than keeping naughty songs off my playlist. It's putting songs on my playlist that will transform life, so that, I think that's important. Sing us a couple more songs. This is a song uh, that I wrote. Uh, my grandmother had five children. Uh, two boys and three girls. My mother is the youngest of all of them. And they were all you know, part of the civil rights movement. They, I don't know that they even had a choice necessarily. It was just part of their growing up. And when my mother was around nine or 10 years old, those children were the first children in their county to desegregate their school system. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing they did. Looking back, I don't think they knew what they were doing. They just didn't want to walk. The other school was just so far away, and the white school was in their back garden, and I think it was one of those things like, we won't have to get up as early if we go to the white school. And um, my grandmother said to them, do you want to go to the white school? And they said, yeah. And she said, all right, well, let's go. And for the next how many ever years, they did that, and it was hard, and uh, it was cruel. 
And it was more than any child that I know should have to do. And I often think um, it's kind of like going to war. You know, when, when they say, when they send soldiers off to war and they come back, even the ones that come back alive, not everybody comes back in one piece. And that's not just a physical thing. And my aunts and uncles, my mom, weren't, they weren't unique. There were, when you think about it, who had to desegregate the schools in America? The adults couldn't do it. It was all children. And not every one of those children came back whole from that experience. And my aunt was one of those kids that did not come back whole. And uh, that experience set her on a trajectory of just a life where her heart was broken beyond repair. And my aunt just died recently. And um, my grandmother passed away before her. And I was, found myself imagining if my grandmother could write my aunt a letter, if she had thoughts on how things went down, if she could speak to her about the pain she carried for the whole, I wondered what she would say. And my grandmother, I don't think, is, was the type of woman to carry a lot of regrets, but she was very honest. So I used my imagination to pen this song, a letter from my grandmother to her daughters, particularly my aunt, and this is called Little Girl. Just the fuck. 
to the Soul Surmise podcast with Steve Stockland. The series is produced in Hollywood by Peter Greer 